Welcome, and thank you for pressing play. I'm Crystal Bergfield, and this is Back to School with Crystal Bergfield. Throughout history, great teachers have stepped forward to help show us the way to coexist in society. They have urged us to consider our role in community. Just like those teachers, I am offering up my knowledge and experience to contribute to a just, responsible, and innovative United States. Through storytelling, interviews, and in-depth discussions, I will dive into the issues that plague our society and highlight new ideas that could contribute to a healthy nation. This podcast is part of a larger curriculum to educate Americans about our society. Find your seat, take a breath, and prepare to expand your mind, your heart, and your reality. Welcome, friends, to Back to School with Crystal Bergfield. Today, I have fellow truth seeker in the treehouse, A.M. Pfeffer. He is the hanged man. I'll let him explain all about this shortly. But first, let me welcome A.M. Pfeffer. Thank you for coming to play in the dirt today. Oh, one of my favorite places to be. Thank you very much for having me, Crystal. You are more than welcome. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, your book, you just finished a book called Of, By, and For the Hanged Man, um, which for everyone listening, go out and buy it right now. <laughs> I started reading it last night and could not put it down. It's amazing. Um, so much Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'd love for you to start to just share a little bit about yourself, and we'll get into that hanged man piece and what that really means a bit later. But if you want to share what you want to share, and and you share a lot in your book, um, so people really get to know you. Um, But what do you want to share here? Yeah, I mean, obviously in the book, I share it all. And that's the idea, get it all off my chest and promote vulnerability. I think that's a big Mm. thing where we all need to be these days. Uh, But for your listeners, if they want to know who I am and why they're listening, uh, you know, um, I am currently living in Los Angeles, just turned 40 at the end of last year, uh, married about five years ago, had a son a little less than two years ago, and uh, felt the need to write a book a little over a year ago, just kind of came to me, turned to my wife six weeks before <laughs> before she gave birth and said, I'm going to write a book. And she just kind of looked at me and <laughs> I expected her to just shut me down immediately. And she's like, go forth. Let's do this. Nice. So, so yeah. she's supportive of, of you spreading the truth. She is my biggest supporter and I love her for it. That's beautiful. Thank you. So your book is called Of, By, and For the Hanged Man. Can you describe or share with the audience what is the hanged man? I'm happy to. Uh, The Hanged Man is a depictive figure based on the Norse god Odin. So originally the Norse god Odin hung himself upside down from a tree. I mean, obviously we're talking about a fictional character here, but uh, he hung himself upside down and he was the original truth seeker. He was the world's first truth seeker. Um, And he did so specifically because he was what he wanted to see, the dramatic ruins of the Well of Erd. I know we're traveling down a big rabbit hole with that. But, the, you know, the, the prophecy grew, and that turned into what is known as the hanged man. And the idea of the hanged man is, is finding truth in your own contradictions. To be upside down, to be hung upside down is a place you want to be. You know, find a different perspective and find that perspective in your own contradictions. Or, in other words, truth in its opposite form. That's the hanged man. Nice. And I'm going to quote from your book here for just a moment. <laughs> so for, again, for the listeners, um, a little setup about this book. AM actually asks quite a few questions from, um, from a different perspective, and he answers the question. So he, um, somebody is asking the question. So AM, and you've hung yourself upside down and discovered truth in your own contradictions. And AM answers, Oh, I most certainly have. Contradictions regarding tolerance, loyalty, morality, and prosperity, to name a few more. And now I'm ever fucking eager to share the truths discovered. Hell, I'm downright obsessive with the truth. Your truth, my truth, the whole world's truth, damn it. Because to survive and thrive as the screaming cacophony of misinformation all around us loudens by the day, the best possible perspective is required. And uncovering truth, and only truth, is needed now more than ever. The dirt under your fingernails kind of truth. 
and then you go on. That's some that's some dirt. <laughs> that is some dirt, specifically, literally and figuratively, some dirt right there. By the way, that was awesome, and I might have you start coming to my readings and doing them for me because that was great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So, and as I was reading your book, I'm 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 a very expressive person, so I'm reading it like, yeah, and, and the fucking truth, man. <laughs> Let's get into it. <laughs> the fucking truth. Let's get right to it. <laughs> So what, why, why did you write this book? Love that question. Um, There are a dozen reasons, maybe more, but if I'm going to pinpoint one, we're going to go with uh, Trump. Um, And, and not because I'm not about to bash him. This isn't what I'm getting at. It was more of like, I had no idea this guy could get elected. That's really what it came to. Like, okay, there's just no way he's going to win this election. We all believe that. And it was like, when it happened, it was like, okay, I need to, I I think I know a lot, but I know nothing because (laughs) because, uh, he did. And I wanted to take this journey to understand why. And then I wanted to really bring about, you know, how something like this could have happened and where we all are, you know, like what, what is the truth? What is the truth that we all find in ourselves? And that's, that's how this came about and really honed in on truth by way of contradiction. Yeah. And so in your book, you really bring your journey together with our collective journey. And so you tell us a lot of stories about yourself, but then you also tell a lot of stories about the United States and our American history and where we are today. Um, how how does that fit for you? And or tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I love to consider myself a flag waving patriot. I love this country, <laughs> yeah. and you know, it's it's a place where I'm going to raise my children. Never intend to leave, certainly. But the, I found the best way in to tell this story was anecdotal memoir. You know, I mean, I wanted to, and you obviously read the book. I mean, chapter one is very self-deprecating <laughs> and you get to know me and you're like, I kind of, you know, do I like this guy? I think I kind of like this guy. And then bang, chapters <laughs> two through eight are, let's, let's talk, let's get right to the dirt, let's get to the truth. Um, but we're having that conversation. As you, as you mentioned, you know, I, I bring that voice into there, which is partly my Jiminy Cricket and partly, you know, the who's who I'm talking to. I do that for a very specific reason, but yeah, that that's, that's how it came to be. And that's why I wanted to write this book. Originally the initial idea for the book was actually called the liberal, a liberal landlord or the mm-hmm. liberal landlord, which is mm-hmm. chapter three. Um, and the reason being, it was like, you know, I, I am, I am a very liberal progressive person, but I'm in a business that is populated by conservative people. That's really what it is. And that was my biggest contradiction, at least about myself. And and, and I was initially going to write a book about just that and then started thinking, well, what else am I? And that's how this book flourished. And I said, well, this is a way better story, a way better in to talk about everything that I wanted to talk about. Yes. And you talked too about how the hanged man is a paradox personified. Actually, to quote you again, <laughs> hangman is to be our representative on this journey of self, on this journey of self-discovery, as well as a symbolic reminder that we should endlessly strive for a better world than the one we currently inhabit, one without all the misapplied divisiveness, a world where certitude is supreme, where vulnerability is a strength, and where everyone simultaneously understands that the survival of our species is what matters most. And, you know, you, you say that you, ha- you wrote this because of Trump, right? But it, Trump is a symptom of, of the system in which we live. Yeah, I want to be, I want to be clear. He was the impetus is to say, like, you know, what started this journey? I mean, I certainly did not write this as a response, necess- a total response to Trump or about Trump. And in fact, I don't mention his name once in the book, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is not what this is about by any shape, by any means. You know, this is a much bigger journey, a much more important conversation to have than, yes. you know, one guy running the, the country right now. Uh, but yes, I mean, th- that's really what it came down to is like, that is all that matters now is that we seek out the truth, that we, you know, we find vulnerability in ourselves because that is what is ultimately going to bring us all together or what has been bringing us together. And people have really come to that conclusion the last couple of decades and it's working mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and let's throw empathy in there because that's what works for all of us, obviously. Um, but what are we all getting at? What is the point of all of this? And the point is that the survival of our species is what matters most. So, you know, we, yeah. 
and and obviously that's a big idea to bring into a book, but uh, you know, hopefully I wrap it all in together and into one cogent reading for everybody in a couple hours of enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. You do a great job of that. And you talk so much about these different systems. You talk about healthcare briefly. You talk about the education system. You talk about the Federal Reserve, which I'll get into a bit later. You you definitely talk about the world of finance. So you've talked about all these pieces. I'm wondering how how do we start to move beyond this space of stuckness that you really talk about in the book of you're showing us exactly where we are and what we need is this unity. Um, But often in this place of the stuckness in these these systems that don't work, it tends to be a very short-sighted vision, right? We're always reacting in this space. And something that I talk about quite often is how, you know, as human beings, we're just trying to survive, as you said, right? Like we're trying to survive as a species. And with inflation happening and wage stagnation happening and um, the world just moving so quickly, news 24-7 and and the media plays a huge piece um, in what it feeds us. So it seems like it's a big mess. You're going to bring me back to exactly what I'd love to talk about this book. And you just quoted me out of the book with the term misapplied divisiveness or misapplied divisiveness, however you want to say it. And think about why or what I wrote there for a second, because, you know, divisiveness has become who we all are, right? It is unfortunately describing what's going on in this country, especially the last five or 10 years. Um, But if if you think about the term misapplied divisiveness for a second, I'm saying it's, it's okay to be divisive but we're (laughs) applying it incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And what we're allowing for ourselves is all of these big issues right now, the news cycle 24 seven, and all of these things coming at us at once, uh, terrorism, jingoism, capitalism, socialism, pickingism, you know, they they are circling in formation at us and we, we are pairing off and fighting them incorrectly. We're misapplying that divisiveness and they're not what's important anyway. That's the difference. Understanding yourself, getting to the center of who you are and your own contradictions is where we need to start. That's the starting line is what I'm trying to get at with this book. And from there, you start to realize that all the other bullshit doesn't mean anything. (laughs) What's important is and and how we're going to come together and survive as a species and thrive as a species, even more important or just as important, is doing just that is understanding who we are, our own personal contradictions, which leads into the larger contradictions of society. And that's our starting point. Yeah. You know, you also talk about um, the blaming that we do, and you talk about the 1%. And I have to be honest, I've been guilty of blaming the 1% as well, um, because it's an easy target, right? These people have all of the wealth, and here we are fighting to gain civil rights, human rights, um, basic human needs. So there's an easy target there. But what you're saying is we should ignore them. They're not the problem. They're not, they're not the problem at all. They're Frankenstein's monster. Like we want to make so many <laughs> other things, you know, I mean, you yeah. know, they're, they're, it's such a great term, the 1%, which then the media sensationalizes. And then we all think, oh my God, it's them. It has to be them. Right. Well, think about the other side of that, you know, with, with, if you're upset about the conservative agenda point pointing towards, you know, uh, uh, transgenders not allowed in the military anymore, you know, and it's like that it's this it's almost the same thing because you just want to find who's at fault and then say, yeah, that's the problem. And if we keep doing that over and over again, we're, we're missing the real idea of like what has caused the, the income gap. It's not the one percent. They are just that they are one percent of the population. And I'm saying in the book like. You know, at, in a capitalist society, which is who we are, and that's not going away anytime soon, someone's going to rise to the top. And how, what, what's your, what number are you okay with? Five times as much mm-hmm. that they have of everybody or a million times as much? You know, they're like, let them go do their thing. What the rest of us just want to be middle class. We want to raise our families. We want to pay our mortgages, you know, and we want to live our lives like, like we should. Um, and yeah, they're, they're definitely not the problem. Yeah. Well, and they're a symptom, right? Or they're, they're a product of the system. They're a product. They're a product. And, That's and, exactly right. 
Yeah, and I, I often talk about how we're all born into our environments. We don't get to choose where we're born into. Um, if you get into some of the spiritual stuff, some people might say that you, you do have a choice, but we land here. And then we are raised in these environments. And the beauty of the United States that I've found in in researching our history is that we have been um, rugged, um, courageous, adventurous human beings to go out and try and change the landscape and to create something with with the very little that we had that's in us is competitiveness. So we can't blame these folks who saw the system and saw an opportunity to, to get ahead for their family, to, to take advantage of that system. Um, and I, I think that goes really for everything, um, within our system. We can't hate the person. We got to hate the game and try and change the game. If we want to change the game. Love everything you just said. And the, the specific words of rugged and individualistic and inside the book, I talk about rugged individualism, which has been a very big thing in this country, you know, and uh, is is, a, is the spirit of the United States of America, right? That's who we all are and want to be, and it's everywhere. It's it's in, you know, the southern part of the United States, all the way up to Silicon Valley, all the way up to New York City. You know, I mean, that is who we are and what we should always want to to remember about ourselves, because that's yeah. what makes this country great. Absolutely. This fearlessness that we have. Right. And I think a couple of things here. I would like to hear one of, um, you know, how do we take this rugged individualism and bring that unity, recognizing that community is important. And and as a society, as a um, as a nation, we can't survive without one another. Um, So if you could address that, and then I'm going to ask you something else, too. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, everything in life has symmetry, right? You have to remember that there's a mirror image to everything. So if you want to be a rugged individual, well, the other side of that is you're still going to be part of a community. You know, we're not all just uh, going to be hermits living in the woods, you know, uh, and, and it's you have that right. You want to be that right. But we are still a society 330 some odd million of us. And we must remember that. And we're all working towards a common goal, um, you know, to to flourish inside of these United States. That's how we do it, that you must remember that you are. It's everything is two sides of a coin to like that's, you know, if if you're if you're disappointed in someone, it means you love someone. Right. Mm, If you just wanted something, it means you love something. And yeah. that's probably where we're all at right now is that we're all disappointed in each other. So it feels that way because at the end of the day, we all still love each other. That's a good thing. We need yeah. to all remember that. That's a really well said. Thank you for that reminder. So the other piece about that, this rugged individualism or just individualism in itself, um, I notice that it, it has begun to be or maybe not begun, but it's often being played against us. So we get into the space of the individual and then with uh, inflation and and with prices rising and with being marketed to all the time, there seems to be so much that we need. Um, And so to me, I call this a scarcity narrative, right? We have this narrative that's being played out saying there's not enough. You got to hold on to your own. You got to protect yourself. And so that often makes people fearful in that space. And in a fearful individual space, it takes us away from that rugged individualism of having the courage. I mean, that really is what America is known for is this fearlessness. And right. And, and how fearful we've become. Yes. Right. That's where, yeah. that's really where we're at. Yes. And specifically right now, you know, in the past couple of years that every day is is misinformation every day. Yeah. And that just drives fear and that we suddenly all start <laughs> we start congregating around that fear and allowing that to feed us. And that's the shitty part about what's happened to us. This this great rugged individualist country and, you know, the, the frontiers people and the settlers and everything we're known for and love about ourselves and, and take pride in is just falling by the wayside by the day. Yeah. 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 So that's where we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth. That's <laughs> hmm. Let's talk a little bit about our history and 
um, you know, we were just talking about that rugged individualism. So let's keep going there for a moment. And you talk about in the book, it took grit, courage, and some booze <laughs> to get to where we are. <laughs> to head westward, yes. Yes. <laughs> Which I love, right? That's the honesty. And and to come back to that hanged man, right? That It's the truth seeker, regardless of whether this truth is soft and warm or it hurts like hell, the truth is the truth. And we, as you were just saying, we've moved away from telling the truth, um, from from this space of objective truth, because we all have our individual truths. And um, and often I, I think that some people don't even know what their truth is. And so they get lost in what other people feed them. So what's history told us? Like, what can we learn from our history so that we don't continue down this same path? You and I are both history buffs here. Yeah, I, look, that's a great question. I mean, but which facet of history are we looking at? Are we looking at, yeah. you know, economics? Are we looking at race? Are we looking at politics? Or are we looking at all of it as, as a mm-hmm. whole? Mm-hmm. I'll ask you that question. What, what do you want to focus on? <laughs> so much. I mean, we could even, in reality, and this is a place that I try and push people you know, the United States is our collective history here. But if we look at kind of where we've gone off path, if we look at ancient history and look at ancient civilizations who were able to maintain themselves for thousands of years, what were they doing that we're not doing? Because we're still a baby country, you know, mm. and and in that babiness, we're already declining. Yes. And... <laughs> Great questions. First of all, we all need to be aware of the fact that all civilizations rise and fall. So that's what's very hard for Americans to ever digest is that (laughs) we ultimately at some point are going to fall. You know, it just depends how hard we fall, where we fall. Can we rise back up again? Um, First and foremost, it's probably let's let's talk about this for a second, that we all need to prepare ourselves that over the coming decades, Washington, D.C. is not going to be the one making world policy anymore. That's going to come from the other side of the globe. That's Mm -hmm. the reality of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you know, the population, you know, way, way bigger than who we are outside, you know, out of China and India. and, And that's the reality. And that's okay as long as we understand that. Um, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) we have to think about, how how to maintain who we are, maintain our dignity, maintain our pride, and continue moving forward. And remember that this rugged individualism is what made us great to begin with, and always hold on to that. And you got to be patient about it, but at the same time, fight for it. There's another that's that's two sides of the coin. It's always yeah. two sides of the coin. Yeah, yeah, and I think what hits me too is. We have an we have a personal responsibility to this nation, to any society in which we live. We sign a contract, really, saying that we will abide by certain rules in exchange for certain values, right? And so, in in U.S. society, we have um, we abide by the laws of the land, uh, and and in exchange, we are supposed to have these certain rights that are guaranteed to us, these unalienable rights that we talk mm-hmm. about, um, and. I really love about how you dig in, again, these two sides of the coin. You dig into the government and talk about its failings, but you also talk about how vital and and necessary and how beautiful government can be. Oh, yes. And that's, for me as a leader, that's where I really love to dig in because it is. It's a, it's a great tool, and that's all it is, right? It's a tool that we can use. And when you have the... When you have people who are selfish holding on to this tool, they forget that there's 330 million Americans that they're supposed to be taking care of. Or maybe they just see their their party's um, affiliation and taking care of those folks. But from my perspective, I've, I've seen that leadership has um, gotten away from the leading part. Uh, and at the same time, as Americans, we've gotten away from our personal responsibility of holding them accountable, being in community, thinking, asking these why questions. 
Um, do you have anything you want to add to that or share along those lines? Well, I, want, I wanted to turn this around on you now, but if, Please. We, if we could, with a segue, because, I mean, you, you know, you talk about, but speaking of government, obviously you are running for president of the United States. And yes. to talk about leadership, I mean, I would ask you, you know, how do you change the leadership? Let's say you're there and you're, you're on top right from day one. What is it that you're going to do to change that leadership? Yeah. When I reflect on the whole of a nation, you need leadership. You need leadership that's able to see beyond where we are now. Um, and what I see right now is that it's a very short-sighted or near-sighted um, space of leadership and very much reactive to, and to be, you know, quite honest and uh, real, we've pushed leaders into the space of expecting them to react to these hot topics, right? So it, it is a relationship that we hold. Um, but to me, great leaders are ones that are able to step back, take an objective look. And I will say from, from my life's journey, I'm only able to do this because I have hung myself upside down. I've become that hanged man to see my own experiences and to also observe the experiences of people around me. And, and having traveled this country and um, been in healthcare, been in education, been in the military, uh, worked for federal and local government, being able to see these things, see their shortcomings, but also see them as this tool that's just not being used really well at this moment or also seeing those places where it's been used. So for me, they're all tools that I have in my bag. And knowing that leadership is one that leads, that can inspire, but can also give the steps forward. So what that takes, number one, is trust trust building. Um, I think we're at a place today when we don't trust, we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our neighbors. We don't know our neighbors. Um, we don't trust our government leadership and for some really good reasons in, in many cases. Um, but my, my pureness, I, I am this very, um, I have great character. And so in that, I just want to serve. And I, that's been my whole life's journey is I just want to serve. I just want to solve the problems. I love to research this. I love to ask why. I, I want to solve these problems. And I recognize that great leadership is, is that, right? The, the desire to serve and to want, and then to ensure that I've got a team of people around me who are also asking those same questions and wanting to solve those problems. I love it. I mean, you know, in the middle of all of that, you said something so prescient about our leaders currently having to be so reactive. And from what I hear from you is how proactive you want to be. And that's really the problem right now is that so many of our leaders, specifically our main one, you know, it feels like they just can't wait to react to something, you know, and that's how they lead by. And it's what, how is that getting anything done? Right. Yeah. You want to ask questions. You want to be proactive about taking this charge and, and getting right to the systems that are not working. Because, I mean, I, I would ask you, you know, what, what do you think are our most vital systems in this country? What are the, what are the top two or three, <clears throat> three most important that, that we need to focus on daily? Yeah. Education is number oh, one. You know, it. an uneducated <laughs> population is easily manipulated. And if we have to really just funnel all of our energy there, not just educating the children uh, or putting money there, but also putting our attention there. Why are we educating children? What are we trying to instill in them or teach them? Are we trying to prepare them to become adults to function in this society? Are we trying to get to the moon, right? Like even when we were trying to get to the moon, they funneled so much money into um, ensuring that we could school and educate people to figure out these solutions, right? So we can easily do that by putting our attention there and understanding the why. What is it that we're trying to achieve? Um, so education, and then absolutely, I don't call it healthcare. I call it the health of the people, um, mm -hmm. because we know that healthy people are happy people and happy people are productive people. And that really is what keeps a nation going, right? Is this ability to be productive, not just for the system or the machine, but also in our lives and being artistically productive or, or emotionally productive. And, and that health is the root of that. 
Um, Love it. And, and first and foremost, look, as a private citizen who has no interest in ever holding political office, I would still love to hear that. Love to hear your answer of education and couldn't agree more. It is undoubtedly the most important thing. Um, although, I want to throw a quick caveat into that because Please. we are we are a mixed uh, we are a mixed people, right? Everybody in this great land deserves everything, and and that's what we all need to come in agreement upon. And that's the tough part is like, what is that education? You know, yeah. what type of education? Because somebody can can look at that and say, hey, I don't want your education or what you think this education is, and that has kept people oppressed for mm-hmm. hundreds of years around the world. And we need to yeah. be very careful about that and what public education means. Uh, number two about healthcare. I, uh, you know, I want to I want to ask about that because uh, what what is your platform, by the way? I mean, where do you stand on that? Are you a single payer system, or do you want to keep private insurers? What do you think is the best way forward? <laughs> uh, well, to the healthcare first, I think that the private insurers is is problematic for our country. Um, it's, it, it's it's a middleman that now we are paying somebody else to have access to something that is supposed to be an unalienable right, um, this access to health. Um, I think that the education piece comes into that. So I'm I'm not one that is a yes or no vote. I think legislation has its place, has its purpose. But if we rely 100% on legislation, um, that will be our downfall of just focusing on this one area. We have to begin to have these greater discussions of why and how can we solve these. Many people don't understand that the executive branch itself um, has over 2,000 positions that it appoints and places people into and has control around and over. And those people are working in Department of Education, Department of Agriculture, um, Homeland Security, all of these other spaces where there's so much, um, there's a lack of attention being paid. And yet, we can solve a lot of problems in those systems, right? If, If we look at the Department of Education, it is about educating the people. So can we educate people about health and what that means to be healthy and educate people about our current systems? Let's Tell- let's educate people about how we got to our current system, right? Please. Let's talk yeah. about history for a second. Yeah. Um, let's talk about private insurance or how it came to be in this country that we expect our employers to take care of our health, which mm-hmm. is <laughs> completely antithetical to like what we're all really trying to achieve or how, how do we get to this point and why is that okay? You know, and really that feeds into a way bigger conversation about why, you know, wage, <laughs> wages were held captive in the seventies and ultimately into the eighties. And then why now all of a sudden there's been this big push for, uh, uh, to bring up to $15, the minimum wage, and then how that affects everybody. And then small businesses continue to close. Well, yeah. again, you know, everybody wants to point to the fact that it's like, it's a problem to raise those wages or to demand that. Well, again, they have to carry employers, employees, health insurance. That's a problem that never should have been the case. And to to bring up history again, how we got there after World War II, where small companies, this was not foisted upon them. This was actually a loophole that they used um, to get better employees. And they offered as an incentive because it was tax free. And then that grew into a much, much bigger thing through the 50s and 60s. And people started utilizing that fact that then the employers thought this was such a great thing. You know, we now have this health care and everybody's going to be happy. And then ultimately you'd be like, like so many other things in history, it becomes an albatross, it becomes a burden. And then we end up where we are today. And then you look at small employers, which has been the backbone of this country uh, forever, because, you know, other, we don't want everything to be some large conglomerate, some large corporation. And then the small employers are forced out of business or forced to cut people and then say, well, I don't want employees anymore because it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've kind of pushed private industry into the space of either, um, making people these um, ends to a mean, so taking away the humanity in people, or uh, you won't survive, right? And I really enjoyed what you were talking about around capitalism um, and how utilizing capitalism at its best allows the government to do what it is uh, really supposed to do. You say it's, um, how did you say it's the, it's the desired result. That's That's what it is. 
you know, it, it, it's it's what it should be. You know, it, this word this word has become prevalent again, socialism, which you know, it, it, it hurts me. It hurts my inner ear to keep hearing it, to be honest with you. I don't like the term democratic socialism. I don't like socialism. Sure as shit don't like the term ca- communism. <laughs> I am a capitalist at its core, and I am an extremely uh, left-wing, left-minded individual. I'm first to say that, but, like, I am a capitalist through and through. It is absolutely what we all need, I think, throughout the world. The, the, the more we can gravitate towards it, it's just a matter of... of you know, doing it the right way, because the wrong way is what happens when people blame the 1% getting back to there for a second or oppression or it's used for oppression or it's used to consolidate the wealth. But the desired result of capitalism is not socialism. It's not socialist ideas. It is things like single payer tax, excuse me, single payer uh, healthcare system where it comes from the government. That's what government is for. That's looping back around to what you were talking about. That's the idea of government, right? Yes. Yes. And, and you talk about this, too, in your book of how it is the they get to provide us yeah, to as, provide. Yes. <laughs> right. That is <laughs> that's a perk. That they, get, they get to provide. That's what. Yes. And, yeah. I, and I and I say it in the book, too. I mean, like the in this beautiful democracy of ours, <laughs> you know, the 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 legislators and, and people that work in the government, they work for us. We're paying yes. their tax. We are the landowners. Right. Don't ever forget that. And that's my that's my biggest problem with socialism and communism. And, and unfortunately, the youth of America are all talking about this now. They just don't understand that if you subscribe to either of those policies, you are a property of the state. Mm-hmm. That's strip away everything else. And you're a property of the state. That's what socialism is. That's what communism is. No fucking way. <laughs> that is a non-starter. That is never okay. Well, and I do want to add, though, that that we have socialist programs here in the United States. When we look at health care in the way that you want to go, that's a tool that is a social tool. Um, when we look at firefighters and, and police officers, like those are paid for by the government to provide a service to they the people. To, but again, that is a product or byproduct of capitalism. Yes. That is yes. not, you know what I'm saying? It's not, it didn't sprout from socialism. That is yeah. just, there. Can we use a better word? How about a communal idea? You know, it's a community. It's a byproduct of, of what the of what federalism should create. You yeah. know, that is that's okay. That yeah. is capitalism. That is exactly right. I mean, that's exactly what it should be. And you know, in defense of these younger folks, and I don't think you're attacking them, but in in defense of them, you know, wanting this socialism or this democratic socialism, what I see is that they've grown up in this hyper-capitalistic society in which it's gone off the hinges and it's it's been destructive in many ways of um, now they're at this place. And you talked to, I love it, you were talking about we're pushing these younger generations into communism because now they're having to live together to survive. Mm-hmm. And so from their perspective, capitalism is terrible. Mm-hmm. They don't, they've never seen healthy capitalism. Exactly. To your point. And that's the shit of it. And that's a shame. And that's what we need to focus on is not changing what, you know, not just gravitating towards what the next bright, shiny object is. Oh, socialism or, oh, this idea of communism. And to, to loop back around what you were just talking about there, I do mention in the book, like, you know, these developers create these co-housing places and then spin it as these amazing utopian awesome spots super cool like no that is communism that is the dark ages (laughs) that is not what we all want you know like your your habitation should not be that it's again i and i say this in the book too like i work in a we work i love i'm we're we're recording this i'm in a conference room at a we work great to go to every day you know love we work don't want to go home at night where i gotta live with four other people you know or share a place that doesn't that it's not healthy well, and I do think that there are some folks, because I know a lot of them, who are communal livers and, and they like to live together and, and share that space and they share a garden and they take care of animals together. That's cool. That's your space. And that's not what our it's system right. was that's meant not, to that's produce. That's not what we're talking about, though. I mean, of course, like if that is what you want, I mean, if you really, truly gravitate towards that. Yes, absolutely. You know, that is your right and more power to you, you know, but again, it is being foisted onto people that that's what they should be doing. And then it is ultimately being sold to them that this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a yes, (laughs) you got it. (laughs) Well, 
this brings us back to the how vital it is for truth seekers like ourselves, these hanged men, to come forward and to be speaking that truth, right? Because because these young people haven't seen healthy capitalism. And so that's the beauty of generations. And you even talk about this in your book of of generations and how we all have this um, very specific perspective based on generations. Um, but from my point of view, that's also the beauty of society, of community, is that we can learn from one another and, oh. and that truth seekers like yourself are able to say, hey, here's a flag. This is what real capitalism can look like. <laughs> and this is what healthy capitalism can look like. Yes. And I, I, and thank you very much for saying it. And, and really glad that you subscribed to that idea as well. I mean, because that's that's right. Healthy capitalism is such a great term. You should coin that. <laughs> you know, it's not democratic socialism. It's healthy capitalism. That's a way, <laughs> a way better outlook because that is still the backbone of this country. It's something we just want to fix and tweak and, and handle it appropriately. And again, talk about it in the book a little bit too. Like we talk about, you know, what, what is the real issue and where we've ended up with this is privatized everything, mm-hmm. you know, and that is very different than private, uh, private capital and, and an idea of, of private enterprise. Privatized enterprise is, you know, this offloading uh, of government responsibility and then what happens there? You just have companies doing everything for profit off the backs of the middle and lower class. Nope. Yeah. That's an issue. That's unhealthy capitalism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I will I will mention this and maybe I'll push you a bit here. AM. So one thing that I truly believe in is that along these lines of education, right, the, the children, they're they are so malleable. um, And they're also this little package of potential. They could become anything at a young age, right? With the right resources, with the right tools, they could be anything. And one thing that I hold myself accountable to is children and recognizing that they are our future. And so as we talk about healthy capitalism, it's important for me to to also reflect on this. Yes, this is what we built our nation on, and, and this is what we can correct at this place, because we're not too far gone. We can come back to this. But I still am curious to, to keep questioning, is this what we'll have in 60 years? Is this system what we'll have in 80 years? Or will it shift? Will the, those generations who come next have, you know— tools from 15 different types of systems that they put together and are able to mold. Um, but I think that in asking those questions and getting us back on on the rails, moving in a, in a forward direction with a, a vision that we have collectively, it's a lot easier to, to then decide to shift than coming from it out of a space of fear and not knowing and a lack of leadership. I guess so. Uh, absolutely, you know, to to bring this back because you, you had mentioned a, a conversation about the Federal Reserve. Here's a perfect time to talk about it because you just mentioned sixty years, eighty years, or even fifteen years from now, a system. I mean, let's talk about when the Federal Reserve began, nineteen thirteen. So now we're over a hundred years, and that is still the central bank of this of these United States. Now, the Federal Reserve Act that created this has been amended, like so many other acts have, over that period of time. But that's still the institutional foundation of this country. You know, is mm-hmm. that going to be the case in 60 to 80 years? Right. More right. than likely. <laughs> Think so. Li- yeah. <laughs> and, by, and by the way, I, I, I'm not a fan of it. And, it's, yeah. and, and from and from the little hand gesture you just did, you might not be <laughs> As you say so well in your book, you know, everything is a tool. And when used ex- excessively, I think you put a quote in there, um, it, it's not healthy. And, you know, I would say, you know, our our overall illness uh, downfall here in the United States is a lack of health in all areas. Unhealthy democracy, unhealthy capitalism, unhealthy bodies, unhealthy minds. Um, we've got a lot of um, mental illness and, and physical illness and system illness to really pay attention to and to educate people around these things. Yeah, and it's and and as you and as you talk about, I mean, it sounds like you've seen that firsthand. Yeah. You've spent a lot of time on on all of those fronts, 
Yes. So thank you for doing that because there's not enough citizens who do and certainly not enough who then want to use that as a platform to lead the country. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that is for me, I've, I've found peace um, through all of the things that I've been through, the, the mental, the physical, the systemic issues that I've dealt with. I have found peace with it and I can go off and, and get along quite easily. But what I found is that because I am a true leader and and somebody who is also a nurturer. I'm like this mama bear that is super fierce when it comes so to my need, brothers and sisters. Exactly. We need super fierce mama bear. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so it's hard for me to sit back and watch all of this illness happening when I've hung myself upside down. I've understood the own illness within my mind and my body and in the systems that I was combating and came out to realize that we can fix these things. There's there's ways to get beyond the illness into health. And I think that that's something that Americans desperately, desperately need today is to know that we can move beyond our illness. Our, can we talk about that for a second? Because, you you know, you're you're very open about it. And you're very uh, vulnerable to speak on your own website about PTSD. Uh, is this something that that is always ongoing or, you know, is it something you feel like you have moved beyond beyond or is it always a battle? You know, that's a really great question. There are days when I'm like, I'm totally beyond it. (laughs) I'm good. But then there are little pieces. And how I like to talk about it is that there was um, a trauma that happened in my life and not one specific trauma. There were many traumas that happened. And with those traumas, there was a seed that was planted. And that seed, when watered, grew roots. And so the work for me of getting beyond PTSD is to begin to pull those roots, to understand what is this root or what is the symptom that I'm seeing here and how can I get to the roots of this symptom? And so as I continue to pull roots on the on some days, I'm like, yeah, I got this and this is beautiful. And then on those days, uh, for example, this morning I was seeing my physical therapist and he said, why don't you take pain medication? And that I felt a little root. Because the military and the VA healthcare system put me on so many drugs that it it dampened my spirit, it dampened my life really to the point that I didn't even want to get up the next day. I was hoping and wishing somebody would do something, right? So so it's in really finding those roots and they come up and it's a beautiful thing that we have the opportunity to to look at them when they come up, if again, if we so choose. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and thank you for sharing that because it can't always be easy to speak about. I I have one question because, you know, this this is an opportunity on my side of the fence because you, you are running for president. And something that, that really I've been thinking about seriously the past year, a question that I want to ask. This is this is deep. <laughs> this is this is a big one. So that's I want to ask this. How do you reconcile wanting to lead all of us with the idea that the inevitability of, of being president of the United States means that you're going to have to make a life or death decision for a number of people, mm-hmm. not just one person, but for a number of people. I mean, how, how is that supposed to be for all of us as private citizens to look at our leader and say, you, you know, you as an individual want to run for president of the United States. Uh, lead us, take care of us, but you're going to you're going to execute orders to people's death. Now, let's yeah. just get right to the point. That's going to happen yeah. over a four or eight year period. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile that? You know, to me, it, it's it's not a difficult reckoning, actually, because again, I'm a history buff. I, I've studied our um, past presidents and watched leaders throughout history and read about them. Um, And seeing our current leadership and seeing leadership over my lifetime and before my lifetime, I've seen a lot of selfishness in it. I've seen not only selfishness, but also this party politicking of doing what's best for party. Um, And what I also know about leadership is that when you gain power, you begin to lose perspective. And how that looks in the political system is that, you know, if we look at legislators, for example, 
they have to be lobbying all day long and making phone calls, trying to get enough money for their next election cycle, right? It's expensive to become uh, a politician, which I think we need to totally wipe through that because anytime you have an, a system so expensive, you're going to get people with a lot of money. And we know that it takes selfishness to make a lot of money. And that's not a bad thing, but it takes that to be selfish, to get put your eye on the goal of making money for yourself to be able to get to that space. Um, mm-hmm. So when I look at the reflection of what the current system is and how um, current politicians have been leading or lack thereof. I, I, I really don't think it's a leadership. I think it's more of um, setting into stepping into a position and filling a position for most of them. And I look at leadership in a different way. I see leadership as something that people take on when they've been through what the people have been through. And what I love about the military is that you cannot be a sergeant major until you have been a private You can't even be a sergeant until you've been a private. You have to experience that life. And so my experience is having gone through the darkness, having really struggled in these systems, struggled with myself to understand who I am and and what the system is that we live in. And in being in that darkness, I've learned to see in the dark. And I see where we are right now in the U.S. is very dark. We're, we're in this place of growth. We have exponential growth coming, but it's really dark because we don't understand and there's not time for reflection or people don't make time for reflection anyway. Um, and so to be able to make decisions that will ultimately end some people's lives and save other people's lives. I don't question that because I understand that my leadership is selfless and that I am always interested in understanding first and foremost, what is the truth and and why are we making these decisions? And at the end of the day, it's a, it's a very um, loving leadership and love is fierce. <laughs> it's angry at times. It's protective. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's soft and warm, um, but that's not what we need right now. We need this really tough love to say, hey, th- these are the things that are killing us all right now. Mm-hmm. And these are the ways that we can start to work towards fixing them. Uh, and that to me is is why I feel comfortable stepping up into this position, because I know the difference that I hold from other leaders. Love it. Now, let me, I want to follow up with that that obviously you you know you have served in the military and there was a time in this country when that was such a big thing about who our president was going to be you know JFK Nixon all the way up to Carter uh even even HW but like the last four presidents i mean besides W Bush who again was a he was a national guardsman and then a, you know there clearly there was there was a convoluted story about how he served and all of that but he didn't see any live action or even come close to it um you know Trump, Barack, Obama, and and certainly Bill Clinton, no service. And, you know, and then John Kerry, who, you know, was massive smear campaign on his purple heart when he had yeah, to vote. I mean, yes. do, you, do, do you think it's important that the president of the United States uh, had served in the military? I don't think it's necessarily important to have served in the military, but to have a life of service. I think is something that is vital. And you even talk about in your book of um, voluntary servitude. We have willing servitude. Willing servitude. There you go. Um, And I think that that's important. Um, And again, I come back to the systems that are in place. That isn't servitude. They they don't have this opportunity for our politicians. It's it's a path of creating legislation and, and earning money and, and getting people to to buy into what you're selling. Um, and it's I think that's part of what's destroying our leadership model of what makes great leaders is that we've gotten away from the service piece of it. All leaders, anybody working for government, they are civil servants. They are here to serve the goal of ensuring that all of the citizens of whether it's the town, the city, the state, or the nation, ensure that those folks have their unalienable rights and that we're really working towards finding balance in those systems at all times. Um, And so, yeah, service of some sort and... I think great character is something that we we lack in leadership today. 
Oh, in, in a big way. I mean, you, you keep bringing up unalienable rights and appreciate that you do. I mean, that is such the crux of our constitution. So another follow-up question, you know, are you a big constitutionalist? I mean, how is, is yeah. that, is that, you know, that, that piece of paper, uh, you know, is it sacred to you? Hmm. <laughs> is it sacred to me? I'll say this. Because I am a historian, um, and I'm a huge reader, I love to read, and words are powerful, and words can set out a foundation, and, and our Declaration of Independence were words, right? And written in the midst or right at the beginning of our American Revolution to gain our independence, to me, those words were a battle cry for why we were fighting for what we are fighting for. And so words are very powerful. I, I don't know if I'd necessarily say like it's, it's the Bible or it's sacred to me in that way. I think that it creates this foundation from which we can grow. And I have been one to blow whistles at every corner of this is what you guys wrote and you're not upholding yourselves to this. So do we mean it? Do we need to change it? What's going on here? To me, those are the questions that we ask. If we're not up to, uh, upholding ourselves to the Constitution, we need to start asking why. Mm -hmm. it, is it just not working for us, or are you guys just corrupt and you don't give a shit? <laughs> so that that's maybe a little of both. Yeah, maybe <laughs> two two sides of the coin, right? There we go, exactly. right back to it. <laughs> exactly. But I, I do think that um, there are so many wise words in our history and just the history of humankind. They can really move a country, a nation, a world forward. And, and one of the things that I would implement as president would be to hold all federal employees to certain values, basic human values that we can all agree upon and operate from. And those include justice or equity. Um, mm -hmm. They include responsibility to the people and innovation. And so when we hold people to those, if you're, if you're coming in and you work for the IRS, the decisions that you make should be held accountable to, is this responsible to the people? Is this innovative? Is this just? Uh, and I think that just those words, right, we can hold people accountable and ensure that we have people of character who are serving the people, right? If we are to be civil servants, we've got to have a, a foundation of what we expect of people. This is amazing. This this notion of innovation, never heard that before. Love this. You know, okay, justice, sure, we be well. <laughs> it's easy to talk about, and and the term equity. You know, have some equity in what you do, who you are, and all of that. Um, you know, we can go round and round on that. But this idea of innovation, this fascinates me because, as we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, we always have to keep moving forward, right? And we got to consider the survival of the species and where we're moving towards, or what's coming down the pike. Uh, innovation is key constantly. It is what it is what drove this country for the first 150 years incessantly. It's how we got to where we did so quickly. Yes. Uh, and we talk about you know this civilization sustaining itself well. We better innovate, and you know things move way faster than they did 50 years ago, which moves way faster than it did 500 years ago, and five years from now it's going to move way faster than it did just <laughs> five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yes, you know, that that's what we got to think about. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you know, thinking about innovation in a way as a tool again, right? Like not innovating just to innovate, although that's how we got so many of our great inventions, right? Like the idea of the iPhone, that, that was somebody just using their creativity, getting to the moon. That took innovation. Somebody had to think and dream that it was possible. And many people will say, you know, science fiction eventually becomes science. And I'm a believer of that, that if we can imagine it and believe that something is possible, it can become a reality. And that's, you know, that's my foundation for running for president. It's impossible that somebody would imagine that a working class woman in this system of buying your way into a political office could be president. But imagining that it's possible and imagining that we could actually have a leader, a president who wants to serve the people again, it can bring that into reality. But we have to believe it's possible. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, that, so that's I love that. Really, that's that's what you're saying. That's how you're holding fast to the idea of innovation. 
just a, almost almost a, a steadfast belief of what that really means. That's cool. That's very cool. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, talking about federal workers again and the fact that they need to innovate. I mean, circle back to education for a second. I mean, think about the curriculum of, of the United States for the past, you know, since World War II. Everything pretty much stems from World War II. Yeah. The idea was, and everything set in public school was, hey, we're teaching you to be a federal worker. <laughs> that was the idea, is to get a state or federal job, uh, W-2 employee, mid-management, whatever it may be, whether that's in a corporate structure or actually working for the federal government. And then it became a stigma, like, oh, shit, if you don't do this right, you're going to end up working for the federal government right. and you ain't going to be too happy about it. And that's where people are now. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like either either you're in a service sector job, which is 70 percent of this population, or you work for the federal government. And, you know, most of the people aren't happy either way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, right. So, so, so. <laughs> What brings us back to wanting to work for the government? I'll ask you that. I mean, how are you going to inspire people to say, come back, it's great working for the government? Yeah. Well, I will say this, at least where I'm at, I live in Westminster. Well, I live in Broomfield, but I worked for Westminster, Colorado um, city government. And people there are hanging on to their jobs and, and trying to get in at any angle because that city government really takes care of the people and there's health insurance and you get your 401k and, and everything's really taken taken care of. And there's so much instability in those 70 percent who are doing these service industry jobs. Most of them don't have health care offered to them and most of them don't have paid time off. There's a lot of places where they're lacking. And then we talk about all those contractors, right? Like Dejamir, my spouse, he He's a contractor, and sometimes he gets the package he needs, and sometimes he doesn't. And so he's mm -hmm. always looking for stability. And I think that where we are right now, every American is looking for stability. It's as if, you know, we certainly don't have any stability in the White House right now. We don't even know what's going to be tweeted out at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so if we don't have stability our very foundation as humans is at risk. It's, it's again, bringing in this, us into this fear space. Um, so I think that that's one um, huge push is that if, you know, the government, if you're willing to work under these basic human values, saying that you will ensure that you're thinking innovatively and, and with justice and with responsibility to the people, and you want a job, you should have a job. We don't want anybody to be straggling or we, we would certainly like less people on these welfare systems um, because when people are working, it, it gives us um, incentive, if you will. If, if we're working and, and getting paid for our work and we feel like we're being valued, we're intrinsically more happy and more relaxed. Right. Um, so I think that there's I think the pitch is quite easy when you have quality leadership and a system set up that is honest and transparent and people can really begin to find trust in their leadership once again. Mm -hmm. By the way, I want to circle back to, to one thing, so I don't want to misconstrue. I think I threw out the, the number 70% of our population in the service industry. Close to 100 million people work in the service industry of the workforce, but 70% of the workforce would consider themselves unhappy at their job. That's, that's correct. Well, so I don't want, I don't want somebody to fact check them and be like, well, that's, that's yeah, right. Cause everybody's <laughs> got a fact check. Right, right, right. You know, I, I just did some, um, last month I was looking into our jobs and wages and how, um, how unstable, <laughs> unstable the job market is. Right. Um, but, but you're certainly on, on the right path. There are, a huge majority of Americans are in service industry, and, and those jobs are the ones that, um, unless you're working for a really great private organization who wants you to have great health care and who is doing great for the environment and, and has made a commitment, which there are a lot of really great organizations and private companies out there, um, but often those people making the lowest wages aren't those folks that are working for these great Right. Yeah, and to, to your point, there are many, many, many great organizations and companies out there, and everybody trying to do the right thing. You know, environmentally conscious and and economically conscious. I mean, all of that is is great, and it goes without saying. But it's like who who's really dictating policy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who yes. who are the ones who are actually making the decisions? I mean, they're they're fewer and far between, and they're fighting the good fight as opposed to the extremely large conglomerates and corporations who get to say, no, this is how it really is, and we don't want yeah. to change because it's feeding our bottom line. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be uh, frank, which we decided this would be a frank discussion. Um, 
I think that it's a clusterfuck. <laughs> I think that there is a lot in there. And at the same time, we have so many activists and and people who are doing work for the government, right? They, they are providing these services now for people who aren't able to feed their children or get school clothes for their children or have a house, right? There, there's all these people doing the work that the government is, is should be doing, should be providing these services or ensuring that we all have a stable foundation. Um, so while our government system is fucked up, We've got all of these great Americans who are already doing the work, and I think those would be the ones that we could transition to having some federal jobs and, and really finding the solutions to get beyond our stuckness where we are. And um, mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that when you're in the mud, you need somebody not in the mud to come in and, and show you that you're in the mud or to help you pull yourself out. Um, that's and that, right. And that, uh, that, that, that's perspe- I mean, perspective. And that's really what it comes down to. It's like, that's why I wrote the book. The book is specifically about perspective. Yes, change your perspective. Yes, hang yourself upside down. But understand, I mean, truly see everything before you make any decision and understand who you are and where we all stand, and who you are in the society and where we all stand as a society. And I wrote the book, you know, to talk about the youth and, and to bring back what we were talking about earlier, like certainly uh, not coming at them. In fact, that's who I really wrote the book for. You know, just I want to be kind of like the little bit of the older sibling who's talking to a 15 to 35 year old, you know, who's about to enter into the spray. And chapter four, right in the middle of the book, generation collaborator. You know, I I want to I I love all generations. I love all people want to see all people survive and thrive. You know, that's a big thing, as do you. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I went to a summit last week called the Unrig Summit. And it it brought people from Republican and Democrat and everybody in between together, people that recognize that the system is rigged. And there were over 2,000 people there. Um, And so, you know, they're all doing the work, again, doing this work that the government's supposed to be doing and, and providing at least the education around this stuff. And, um it was really, it was great to see that so many people are fed up with all of this. Um, And, you know, that was just a group of people who are actually doing something about it. I come, I was raised in the Midwest in rural Illinois, and everyone there just complains about it. They're not going to do anything about it, but they'll complain all day long. Well, that's the issue. I mean, that's what we're all sitting around doing too often. You know, where are the activists? And yeah. where the where where is the right type of activism where we're working together on both sides of the equation? Yes, absolutely. Because that's real activism. Yes, exactly. Right, having the conversations and and creating relationships again, yeah. um, which isn't quite the easiest thing with again how quickly things are moving in this society, but it, it is what we need. It is what we need, and there you know again there's the divisiveness. Be divisive, but don't misapply it. Yes. Is there something that you would offer up to the people? either from your book or just your personal experience that they can work on? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the topics, this, probably the top six or seven topics, at least, you know, that I want to touch on in the book is tolerance, faith, mortality, morality, loyalty, prosperity. You think about those, and that's the homework. I mean, think about what those really mean to you mm. and what they mean to the country and where you fit in with those. I mean, what what do they mean to you? Which of those speaks loudest? And how can you get all of those to work together? Because that's the harmony. That's the harmony first you got to bring to yourself. And then ultimately, that's how you're going to contribute to society. Perfect. Can you say them one more time for the people? Let's do it again. I would say tolerance, faith, morality, mortality, uh, prosperity, loyalty, and then specifically the last one, equanimity. I forgot that last time. That's, that's the big one. Awesome. Okay, folks, you heard it from A.M. Pfeffer. Do your homework. Study up. Just think. Just ponder for a day, y'all. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, A.M., for being here and for sharing and enlightening. And we're going to continue this conversation. We'll get into the Fed. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Take care, folks.